Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Alana Lenton, and I am an Associate Professor of Cultural and Social Analysis at Western Sydney University. Western Sydney University is on the lands of the Darug people, and I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darug people and their elders past and present, and acknowledge that we are, when I say that I'm sitting here on Darug land, that I am actively participating in the ongoing colonization of what is unceded sovereign territory. And with me today, I have Dr. Debbie Bargalli from Griffith University in Queensland. Hi there. Thank you for the introduction. My name is Dr. Debbie Bargalli. I'm a Kamilaroi and Wanarua woman, but I'm actually uh, living and working on the lands of the Turrbal people in Brisbane. This is really common for us to do when we are at most events, particularly events that centre around issues of race and racism and colonisation and what it means to live in a settler colonial society in Australia. Although I think it's important to add that it's quite shocking to to me at least, and I presume to you as well, that you can go to a lot of events in Australia and people don't bother doing acknowledgements of country. But we are speaking to an international audience. Uh, and shout out to Chantelle and Tiso for inviting us to do this. We're, we're super excited for the invitation, being part of this Spotlight series. I personally am a huge fan of the Surviving Society podcast, and I've cited it extensively in my upcoming book. It's a really great resource. But because we're speaking to this international audience, I think it's really important for us to explain what an acknowledgement of country is and what the difference between an acknowledgement and a welcome is. So, Debbie, could you explain that for us? Okay, so the reason we acknowledge lands when we go to other people's locations to work or to live or for conferences is to acknowledge that this is a traditional way that we do business amongst ourselves. That is a an acknowledgement of country means that when we step onto other people's lands, we don't go there traditionally unless we're actually invited. So when we do go onto other people's land, we actually acknowledge that we are on their unceded lands. The difference between that and a welcome is that in traditional way, traditional owner or a senior elder or member of that nation of the land that we're on would actually welcome you to that land. So we often had events, a welcome to country delivered that way, or where we don't have a welcome to country, we would usually acknowledge that we are on somebody else's unceded lands. Yeah, that's really, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Often we have international events here or we have guests from overseas. And I don't know how you feel about this, Deb, but I often, okay, so I moved here about seven and a half years ago. And I very quickly, you know, was introduced to, as somebody who works on race, we can talk a little bit about what what I do a little bit later on. But as somebody who works on race, it was obvious to me that this was a practice and that I had to learn and I had to become familiar with and you know what lands am I living on, what lands am I working on, etc. But it was, it was interesting that very often we had events centered around race very often in Australia with people coming from other countries and they would be really skeptical about the acknowledgement. They tend to say things like, well, you know, this is all symbolism And um, what does it really mean in terms of any kind of material change? And there was always a really interesting conversation that took place between those international guests and Indigenous people. And I mean, what do you think about that, about the the symbolism of the acknowledgement and the welcome? 
I'm in two minds about it as an act. We know that traditional, we've always done that as Aboriginal people, as a traditional way, but it's only been more contemporary that it's been formalised as a way to do business at an event. Now, I'm really with it as a form of respect and acknowledgement, particularly when it has meaning. But when it's come become so scripted that people are just doing these acknowledgements of country, but yet they turn around and, you know, suppress us and <laughs> that in our day-to-day workplaces and lifestyles, it, it has become a bit tokenistic. So I'm sort of like in um, two schools of thoughts. I will do it myself as a as an Aboriginal woman on somebody else's land yeah it just depends on the place and it's coming from with the person that's actually acknowledging the country and I think this will probably come up when we come to talk a little bit more about your own research which is about systemic and institutional racism and racial microaggressions in the Australian public service experienced by Aboriginal people who work there this is part of the civil service in Australia you know obviously there there's been a formalization of acknowledgements as there are at the university. So when we have a school meeting, the dean will start with an acknowledgement of country, which as you're saying is very scripted. But on the other hand, when we look at indigenous studies, particularly in our school, although moves are currently being made um, at a higher level to, uh, to think about the curriculum and think about the place of indigenous um, you know, studies and students at the university, we still have a really long way to go. So we have one uh, Aboriginal person who's on a casual contract, as far as I know, carrying the entire Indigenous curriculum in the humanities. And we certainly don't have a mainstreaming of um, Indigenous content across the curriculum, even though that's actually written into what we're supposed to be doing in terms of what the management is saying about what we're supposed to be doing with the curriculum. So it's interesting that there's a kind of, a, I guess, a gap between the symbolic acknowledgement, the decolonizing agenda, which I know a lot of people are interested in. Uh, and as, uh, you know, Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang have said, decolonization is not a metaphor. So what does that actually look like in people's everyday? So I guess that's what people are pointing out when they're critiquing the acknowledgement. But what do you think about that when it comes from somebody from the US, for example? Because it's often people from the US who critique the acknowledgement when they come here. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I've been a part of um, a number of conferences when we've had international guests. When we've got international guests that are predominantly Indigenous from the nations in Canada or New Zealand, they totally get it and they go through these acknowledgements as a way of respect and understanding from their own nations. But when we do have other guests that question us about that, they come with such a lack of understanding of us as Aboriginal peoples mm. um, in this colonised location. Mm. I find it somewhat, you know, disappointing that, you know, when, when, when academics come to Australia that they don't have some grounded understanding of, you know, Australia as a colonised place and mm-hmm. have a good understanding of the place of Indigenous peoples and where we are actually trying to be in the academy and what we do in the academy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always interesting. What strikes me as jarring is that, as I, as I said, very often I hear people from the US who work on race and issues of colonization and so on in other places and then they come to Australia and they say, oh, isn't your acknowledgement very quaint and isn't it really just highly symbolic? And I'm thinking, but you are also living on colonized and occupied and stolen lands in North America. Mm. Yet 
land acknowledgements are very rarely done when it comes to the United States. And just recently, the other day with the Oscars, when Taika Waititi won uh, for, I think, Best Adapted Screenplay, so much was made of the fact that he did a land acknowledgement. Although I think, and you may have caught this on Twitter, there was somebody, an Aboriginal person on Twitter, who said something like, you know, you were up there, you could have gone the whole hog, you could have said these lands are stolen, but you, sp- you spoke about them as ancestral lands rather than as stolen, and uh, you know, still colonized lands. And then there was an article that I read, uh, I think today in the New Republic by I think Nick Martin, who was saying, you know, we, it's, it's very nice to applaud this. And this, I guess, is where the critique comes in. We can applaud this and say, isn't it great? And, uh, and all the rest of it. But what are we actually trying to do to to give back the land or as Aboriginal activists here are saying, pay the rent, you know? So mm-hmm. the Oscars, I think apparently you get a gift bag with like, that's worth, what is it? Like $220,000 worth of gift bag, including some mm-hmm. kind of yacht cruise or something. So what would it look like if they took all of that money and gave it back to, uh, you know, indigenous first nations people in the area where the Oscars actually take place. I mean, things would look completely different and obviously they could afford to do that. So, I mean, there's lots mm-hmm. and lots of ongoing issues that I think are raised by, by this discussion, which are quite interesting. Absolutely. And particularly in the Australian context where we are on unceded lands, our lands are unceded, they are stolen. That's never brought up as a conversation or recognition, even by non-Indigenous people of colour that live here in Australia. There's always conversation about how race and racism works in Australia and what's happening, but nobody grounds that in the context of you know, Australia being an unceded country that's and Aboriginal people being dispossessed of their lands. Mm. And that, that's never up for grabs. And when we have people that come in from places in America and other locations that don't have that understanding, the discussions always end up about, you know, racism being about phenotype and, you know, a black, white binary where that's not the way race and racism works in the Australian context. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that we can get onto in a bit more detail when we talk about your research, because I think it's one of the things that you often say, which I think is really important, but which I think, again, for an international audience might need some unpacking, is the difference between white and non-Indigenous in the relationship to Indigenous people in a settler colonial context like Australia. But you know what I think it might be really interesting to do now is just talk a little bit. So why are we speaking to each other? <laughs> like, who are we? What's our relationship? Um, to, and that will also, I think, help the listener to understand sort of what the scene is in Australia that we're trying, both of us separately and together, to work in. So just a bit of background. I mean, we literally just finished organizing a conference last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were both involved in the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association, which is the only association in Australia that looks at issues of race and, uh, well, coloniality, but through the lens of critical race and whiteness studies. And it's an association that was founded in 2003 by Aileen Morton Robinson, who I guess is Australia's leading race scholar and critical Indigenous studies scholar. Um, and who has been highly influential, North America and other locations. And some of you will have read her book, The White Possessive, which is really important text, but also Talking Up to the White Woman, which is a critique of white feminism, which is really a classic text, which I recommend everybody to read. So I got involved in the association in 2017, and Debbie came on last year. But we also met, we met at an across the conference in 2014, I think it was. That's right, about that time. 
Yeah. So up in Brisbane. And that was really interesting because that for me as a, somebody who was a relative newcomer to Australia, that was my first introduction to critical race work in Australia. So I'd come from, I'd been working in the UK. I actually come from, um, I, well, I was born on another occupied land. I was born in the land, uh, Palestinian land occupied by the Israelis. So I actually am Israeli, but I grew up in Ireland. So I'm an Irish Jew. Mm -hmm. I lived all around Europe doing different work on race. Uh, my work started out by looking at anti-racism movements in Europe. And I guess over time, I you know worked on race more generally and the idea of the post-racial in Europe. And then I guess a lot of people will be familiar with a book I co-wrote with Gavin Titley, The Crisis of Multiculturalism. And it was off the back of that book, really, that I had the opportunity to move to to Australia. And it was really interesting. One of the things that I say very often is that I think, and this is a real problem, and I'd love to get your opinion about this. It's a real problem, I think, in um, Australia is that migrants to Australia don't really know where they're coming. There's very, very little preparation for what it means to actually become a colonizer. I think many people move to this society, and I'm not just talking about people who come from, well, white people and people from an Anglo background who've traditionally moved from Britain and Ireland predominantly to Australia, but all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds who move here with no knowledge that actually what they're buying into is colonization, a coloni an ongoing project of colonization. And I think even for me as somebody who's worked on race, I knew this academically, mm. but I didn't really know what it meant in terms of the feeling that it, you know, what that actually means in your day to day and what it means for your interaction and your relationship with Aboriginal people. That's something mm. that hits you and then you have to unpack and you have to think about, well, how can you work in that, in, in, under those conditions in a way that doesn't further perpetuate the damage that's already being done to Aboriginal people? So in other words, how can you be of any use or can you be of any use or would it be better just not to be here at all, right? So these are really big questions that are brought up through this process of what mm. for some people is just migrating to another country, right? So... So when I started going to um, Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association uh, events and getting to know the, that context here, it became a kind of an area, you know, a context in which to think about some of these questions and made me want to get more involved in the association. And, and I ended up, well, becoming president of the association at a time when really the association was kind of suffering from you know, various things. For example, the far right had hacked the website and a lot of our stuff is done via the website. So, and that all had to be rebuilt and energies had to be rebuilt that were lost because of all this stuff that had happened. And that's when I came in. And, you know, for some people, it was, there was a question mark over what a non-Indigenous woman was doing, running a critical race association in Australia. And I think we've had those conversations between us. It's been really good for me to think about, well, what is the purpose of our common work together? So mm. that's kind of how we met. And over time, we've got to know each other better. And I actually examined your PhD, which we're going to absolutely. talk about soon, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, you're right there, Alana. But I guess it's um, important for an international audience to know that critical race theory and critical race scholarship is pretty recent in Australia. And it's very small. There's a very small field. So when you're talking about like, predominantly people migrating or coming into Australia if they're outside of the academy would never really have these conversations or know much about the way race works, the way racism works within the Australian context. Particularly you meet people that don't even know about 
Aboriginal people, I mean, I hear the comment all the time and I heard it last week when a black international scholar makes comments about being out on the street and asks, where are all the black people? Where are all the black people? It's almost like, you know, we don't exist because we don't look what is perceived to be an Indigenous person should look like phenotypically. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's one thing there. But also the lack of... Um, critical race scholarship in Australia mm. is problematic in and of itself. And as you said before, rightly so, um, distinguished professor uh, Aileen Morton-Robinson is a leader in this space. But outside of her scholarship, where they have very little, um, you know, academic work that, mm. you know, centres race as a category um, of analysis. So that's um, really, really hard. So, in terms of myself, I was lucky enough that I started out my PhD and went through the majority of my journey with Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson as a panel member. So I had significant insight into learning how race and race works in Australia as well as lived experience as an Aboriginal woman, but also um, was fortunate enough to get in critical insight into her take on critical Indigenous studies and yeah. the way that that um, she's developing that field here in Australia. Mm. And she's developing it globally as well, you know, with interactions with First Nations scholars from Canada, Aotearoa, New Zealand and North America. In Absolutely. Ways, yeah. yeah, which I think will be really valuable. So, I mean, maybe we can get onto that a little later mm. on, but I think the link between you know, critical Indigenous studies and critical race studies is really important, but also the differences. So, you know, there's been various comments made from within critical Indigenous literature that we need to be very careful about the difference between race and indigeneity, for example. And I think the problem is just because Indigenous people have been racialized doesn't mean that you can reduce Indigenous people to a race, which obviously then, you know, raises very important questions about, well, what is race anyway? And here, Mm. at least for my purposes, and I know for yours, we're talking about race as a technology of power, a technology of power for the, for the colonial management of human differences is the way that I tend to put it, uh, rather than something that actually is, uh, you know, a description of one's identity. So we spoke about, you know, who you are, where you're situated in this country that's now called Australia, where your land is, etc. Um, and that's your identity. That's not, uh, and that's got nothing to do with, with race, which again, you know, speaks to this question of the relationship between race and phenotype, which is a completely arbitrary and artificial Mm -hmm. construction, which I think, again, is really important to make clear um, for an international audience where it seems to be that race is much more aligned with skin colour and so on than it is in Australia, which, which shows just the way in which race, as, you know, Patrick Wolfe, for example, says, is constantly being invented and reinvented because it's so unstable as a concept that it unstable as a concept that it constantly needs to be packed with more and more content and that it can shape shift in various ways in order to make itself to adapt itself to the context in which Mm -hmm. it's operating which is constantly under transformation we've done a lot of we've already gone into a lot of the you know the big topics but i think it'd be really interesting and this links obviously to the to the conversation we've just been having about race and identity and those links there or the lack thereof a little bit about who you are like you like to talk about us bargali mob Mm. and i love that expression and i think it's such an interesting story and it helps us to understand why you got into what you're doing today so maybe you could just take us through a potted history of 
of your mob and, and also what is a mob for an international audience? Okay, so to, we use the term mob as a term about who we are as a family group or a collective group of people. So our mob is, in my context, and the way I use the word is about my family. And my surname is Bargali. I identify myself as Kamilaroi and Wanarua woman. That means Kamilaroi and Wanarua are the nations that I come from in Aboriginal nations I come from in northwest New South Wales. My surname, Bargali, is actually um, derived from the name Bag Ali. So my great-grandfather and his brothers, they came from Punjab in the late 1800s to work with family members who were Kamaliers and hawkers in the north of New South Wales at that time. There was very little dark-skinned people that um, were in Australia at that time other than Aboriginal peoples. White women obviously didn't mix then at those stages with, you know, Aboriginal men nor men of colour from other countries. And uh, my great-grandfather and his two brothers, the three of them married Aboriginal women. That's the story that I actually call our Punjabi dreaming, the story mm. of us Bargali mob. Yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. It's, and it just goes to show, you know, the different roots that have made up what's happening in this country in terms of all the different people. But also, I think it's really interesting that there's, there's kind of a lack of understanding of the fact that there's so much diversity among or within Aboriginal communities, there's this kind of idea where there are Aboriginal people and then there are settlers and there are migrants and that all these are distinct communities, whereas obviously that's just not the way humanity has worked. That's right, and it's not the way that Aboriginality works as well. As much as many of our families have married into you know, people from other countries and some, some have married into, you know, white Australians, um, when we as Aboriginal people, identify as Aboriginal people, we carry that all the way through our life and that's through our, you know, connection, our deep connections to our countries, our kin mm. and our ongoing relationships to each other and the land. Yeah. People say to me, Alana, quite often, you know, oh, if you've got a Bargali name and you're, you know, Indian heritage, why don't you identify as Indian? Yeah. And my answer to that is that, you know, well, you know what, I, I love India. I love my Indian heritage. I love my Indian surname. You know, I wear a piercing in my nose, but I don't know how to live as an Indian woman. What I know how to be is an Aboriginal Australian woman in this country that has an Indian heritage. And that makes me. That's really interesting. One of the things that came up uh, yesterday, in fact, there was the High Court ruling that ruled that the uh, Australian state can't deport people who are Aboriginal because the Home Affairs Minister um, wants to be able to deport people who are Aboriginal who've committed crimes to other countries where they have relations. So they have, they, you know, they have the, they can access citizenship from those uh, other countries. And the ruling has said that that's not possible. I haven't gone through the ruling and I'm also not a legal scholar, so I'm not sure exactly what the implications of that are, but that kind of speak to, speaks to the idea that there's a complete um, you know, mismatch between uh, this understanding that to be Aboriginal is about a connection to land, ultimately, mm. um, and that gets completely lost in this idea that, well, yeah, Aboriginal people, they can easily belong to another country, like you've been told, well, you can easily oh. be Indian. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And about that, I also am not a legal scholar, but it's just that simple process of like, 
you know, how dare they try to kick out a person who is Aboriginal that has a connection to this country that is from here, regardless and has a parent from another country, from land that's already stolen. Yeah, that's, you know, absolutely. It's, it's crazy. Absolutely. Okay, so that's, I mean, I think those conversations will come up again for us as we go through the rest of the, rest of, uh, the interview because they're so important. But you have had a very long and interesting career that's taken you up to doing this PhD, as I mentioned before, about institutional racism in the Australian public service. And so I think, again, that would be really interesting to just going on from your story about your origins and so on, just to talk to us a little bit about how you came to do this PhD and where you're going with that from here. So that will also give us insight into issues around race and racism in Australia a little bit more. Okay. So I was a public servant in the Australian government, the Australian Public Service, for about 14 years so I predominantly went in there and about I entered the service with a Bachelor of Social Science at, um, in about 1999 mm. and um, I stayed in the service through to about 2013 when I was sort of forced to take a voluntary redundancy or leave the service um, because I needed to return to my hometown where my mum was on life support after yeah. having a stroke mm. and um, the department um, allowed me to work out of that area for a couple of months mm. but then the Australian called the government called an election in um, late 2013 and told me that I had to return to the nation's capital in Canberra and at that time I was sort of like really vulnerable and compromised and you know the options were to return to Canberra or take um, leave without pay Mm -hmm. um, which was not a viable option for me um, or take a voluntary redundancy and resign out Mm. And I felt under pressure and coerced to actually um, take a voluntary redundancy. Wow. But in the lead up to that, I mean, I mean, you could say that I'm bitter and twisted about having to <laughs> resign out of a long-term career. Yeah. But, um, you know, I actually own the decision that I made. I felt like I was, um, you know, forced into making a decision that didn't lay well with me Um, and now I look at it as a um, form of um, resistance and and also an act of political warfare (laughs) to to leave. But before that had happened, I'd already started my PhD and the reason I started that is that I was an Indigenous employee in the Commonwealth for a long time and I was in the role of Indigenous advisor and I saw a lot of goings on about and conversations with Indigenous employees um, and their experiences as racialized group of people mm. in the Australian public service. Um, that led me to, um, well, actually, to, to, to go back one step, there was a number of um, surveys and um, workforce data that's been undertaken by non-Indigenous people about our experiences in the um, in the in the Australian Public Service, but those um, reports and the data findings were never really consistent with our understandings of our experiences ourselves, our lived experiences. Who is commissioning these reports? 
Well, the Australian Public Service, um, the commission of the Australian Public Service, they commission the reports. They get external contractors and mm. researchers to undertake the, the research. Mm. Um, most often that research is done um, by census survey where they're right questions and the questions seem to be framed in a way that don't allow us really to tell the story you know and certainly there's this exercise that they need to say well you know people are raising issues of discrimination so we need to respond to that like where is the impetus coming from yeah well see that what they do every every year is that they look um at how they can well they say how they can better develop the workforce and workforce capabilities and you know how the 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 surveys are predominantly around looking at employee satisfaction. So the thing is, is that the quest, there's no question ever asked about racism. You know, mm. do you experience racism? You know, questions are framed like, you know, do you experience, have you experienced bullying or discrimination in the workplace? And data is always framed in that sort of a way. So, you know, racism is never asked about and never brought up in the findings. Most of the findings reports never use or, you know, note the term racism. And, you know, my feeling is that, you know, um, racism is masked by, you know, framing data under, you know, bullying and discrimination mm. so that led me predominantly to start out on this research journey and when yeah. I went from there yeah so I mean I think that's really interesting uh, you know the distinction between racism and bullying discrimination because often these kind of euphemisms are used and they allow for a kind of a mainstreaming of experience so particularly bullying like I don't know what you think about this but I've seen a lot like for example there's quite a few colleagues who work on cyberbullying, mm. cyber racism and there's a kind of um, an overlap between these two terms so when that gets interpreted down to so you know in your context the Australian Public Service or I'm thinking about schools and education which is another area that we're interested mm. in when we talk about racial literacies, which you can talk about a little bit later on, but you know, how do we deal with a situation where a kid is being um, is is having racist abuse, racist discrimination in the classroom or in the playground? Well, you know, the way in which it's framed for teachers is via bullying, and if they don't recognise the behaviour as classic bullying, then it's not anything because they have no language to talking about racism because the only language that they have is via well, so and so was mean or violent and that doesn't allow for much more subtle and covert forms of racism that are obviously uh, an ongoing and daily occurrence which is something you've dealt with in your thesis uh, via you know your when you discuss racial microaggressions i think yeah absolutely and i think you hit the nail on the head is the lack of racial literacy mm. predominantly we also have to realize that in Australia, racism is vehemently denied and it's yeah. denied in the public service as well. I mean, there's been very little cases um, of racial discrimination or systemic racism that has been founded in the court system here in Australia. Yeah. So when, we, when they talk about bullying and those sorts of words, they are masking racism. And it's also trapped in this understanding of racism as, you know, the violent, aggressive acts or, you know, 
racism being what the you know, Ku Klux Klan delivers as opposed to an understanding of the everyday and structural natures of racism. Yeah, it's really interesting though. I mean, there's a couple of things there. One of them is I think it is quite trendy uh, in the you know the kinds of studies that are done on racism in Australia to talk about everyday racism now. Mm. But I really think what's interesting is that the, the way it's being done by some researchers is to actually divorce it from structural racism. So mm. everyday racism becomes this thing that happens outside of colonial structures, which aren't mentioned at all. Yeah, absolutely. It's like this everyday racism just kind of happens, but we don't really know why it happens, you know. And very often those researchers who do that work, they come from social psychology, so they look at Mm -hmm. it as attitudinal or behavioral. You know, Mm -hmm. and and so what I'm really fascinated by is this ability that, and I think it exists elsewhere as well, but I think it's quite acute in Australia, is this idea to look at racism in isolation, which is why, you know, when you talk about denial, you have this weird thing that goes on on the one hand the denial but on the other hand this constant questioning of are we really racist i mean there was even on sbs which is a tv channel i think a few years ago there was a documentary on like is australia racist or something you know and so there's this constant worry among mainly white people that australians are racist but at the same time, a very quick denial or at least an externalization of that so it's always about some bad apples rather than looking at the system. And these are debates that have been had in other countries really long time ago, but we seem to be still, or when I say we, I think predominantly white society, not Aboriginal people, obviously, and not the majority of people of colour, are having these conversations about, which are really what I would call white anxiety conversations about their own moral goodness or lack thereof, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Talk about a little bit about the findings of your research because, well, firstly, let's plug your book. Tell us a little bit about your your forthcoming book. So I recently won a National Stanner Award for my PhD doctoral research. And as part of that award, I am publishing a book called Unmasking the Racial Contract, Indigenous Voices on Racism in the Australian Public Service. So that book's actually talking to, you know, the findings, predominantly the findings from my research chapters Mm, of my thesis I undertook um, what we call yarning sessions. So an Aboriginal or Indigenous yarning is a method, an Indigenous method for, you know, gathering research Mm. in conversation. So I yarned with uh, 21 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were employees of the Australian Public Service about their experiences um, working as a racialized group in the Australian Public Service. I predominantly use critical race theory and other racial theories such as racial contract theory by Mills, everyday racism, ESSED, and um, the concept of racial microaggressions to examine their experiences. And that's predominantly what my book's about. It's really fascinating to get an insight into, I mean, what's really great in the book is the kind of the insight into the actual people who work, so the actual Aboriginal employees of the Australian Public Service, about mm-hmm. how they perceive their everyday interactions as employees and the kind of the perceptions that other people have of them as employees. So one of the one of the things, and this is really this was really shocking to me when I moved here, is that even students um, from racialized backgrounds in Australia 
will really trot out the same kinds of stereotypes that are predominant about Australia, about Aboriginal people constantly. And one of them is that Aboriginal people get things for free and that they're only in positions um, because there are quotas in place. And that was something that came over quite strongly in your data. So can you talk a little bit about those stereotypes and so on? Yeah, the majority of our experiences um, as Aboriginal peoples in the workforce are from misinformed uh, historical stereotyping of, you know, Aboriginal peoples. Um, There's, you know, the people uh, that were interviewed in mine, you know, talked talked in themes around, you know, being pathologised in the workplaces and, um, you know, being treaders, deviant, also, you know, being accused of being in positions that um, that uh, they aren't considered as um, having merit to have, you know, that they've just got those positions because they're Indigenous. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, Indigenous identified positions, or in the Australian public service they're called identified positions, mm-hmm. are positions that are... Um, meant to be for people that can meet a specific criteria around being able to work with Indigenous employees. They aren't for Indigenous people. Those identified positions are actually open to all people to apply for. And as um, you know, one of my participants says, if you look at the history of identified positions in the Australian, Australian Public Service, you'll find that they're mostly white people that win these positions. Mm. So, yeah, so those... Um, Particularly, um, people talked a lot about um, the day-to-day comments that they're subjected to um, and, you know, in the form of racial microaggressions. As much as they don't call them racial microaggressions, they don't have the language to use that. But that's what, you know, I found in the the data. What's an example of the kind of racial microaggression that you came across in your your research? I say microaggressions um, are... more than just behaviours and acts as well. Yeah, they're also hidden in policies, practices um, on a day-to-day basis as well. Um, People talked about being, you know, pigeonholed in the workplace. The whole idea that um, Aboriginal people uh, that work in the Australian Public Service can only work in positions or areas that are Aboriginal program or policy areas even though we are coming in there from, you know, discipline areas around the social sciences and other areas, legal areas, and that we tend to be pigeonholed into the Indigenous space. Yeah. Therefore making out that we are capable of talking on being, you know, providing advice or working in other areas outside that Indigenous-specific space. People also talked about being placed in tokenistic positions, Mm -hmm. and that's a form of racial microaggression, you know, being used as the token and also being used as the native informants. So the only time we're really included or wanted um, for specific advice is around a matter that's Indigenous-specific. Well, at the same time, as you said earlier, very often the roles that are Indigenous-specific often go to white people or other people who are non-Indigenous. So you're kind of like between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, you can only talk to Indigenous issues and your expertise in other areas is not counted. But on the other hand, actually, you can't even, you know, be in positions of leadership around the issues that concern you the most, which is, I mean, that's a huge problem. I'm thinking about social work, for example, with the epidemic of child removals of Indigenous children from their families at the moment, which apparently is, well, is worse than it was during the so-called stolen generations. There are more children being removed from their families, often just at the point of birth. 
mm. as there mm. ever have before, even though there's been an official apology to the stolen generations already over 10 years ago. And that's mainly because of the involvement of well-meaning, liberal, white, often mm-hmm. women in social work, yeah? That's right. That's entrenched stereotyping. That's, you know, that, that's just in all of our systems. But, like, back to what I was talking about a minute ago, like, Indigenous employees of the public service were also telling me about, like, we, we spoke about not winning positions, yeah. yet having to, the, the insult, the violence of having to actually train up people for for positions that they're not considered enough good enough to be in. Wow. How does that even work out? But outside of that research, it's a similar situation for, you know, Indigenous employees in the academy as well, in the university sector. Very limited numbers of us are you know, in our disciplinary areas and we're all expected to be just teaching Indigenous Studies 101. Yeah, that's absolutely the, where where there are Indigenous studies, and very often. Well, that's right. Yeah, or yeah, well, you have a situation where there are Indigenous studies, and there are white people or other people working in Indigenous studies. So that kind of system is replicated with many Aboriginal PhDs being unable to find work in the academy altogether. Which absolutely, is- I mean, and like I said, you know, I finished a long term career in the public service in 2013 and it's 2020 now and I've been in the um, university sector in Australia since but I haven't held a permanent ongoing position since I left the Australian public service. So, yeah, the financial cost of racism to Indigenous employees in this, you know, country is substantial. Absolutely. So in terms of your your research, I mean, what were the conclusions that you you came up with a couple of a couple of really interesting conclusions and also ways for framing the research. Do you want to quickly give us an insight into that? I mean, don't give away your whole book, obviously, because we all want to read it and buy it and read it, but a couple of little things would be interesting. I came up with um, a taxonomy of racial microaggressions to start with to, that explains and gives actually a racial literacy to understanding the experiences of Indigenous employees in, yeah. the, in the workplace. And this is also following on with some findings from other research that what's required is a racial literacy or a form of racial literacy training in the Australian public service. Like in workplaces in Australia, most training is around uh, providing non-Indigenous peoples with what we call here cultural safety training, cultural competency training, training that focuses on our differences. But um, what I'm saying is that that's done very little to advance us in the last 40 years. It hasn't really changed the position for Aboriginal peoples. And what I'm saying is that Indigenous you know, employees need to be trained around is racial literacy, you know, a, a better understanding of what racism is. And one way that I think this can be done is um, through a better connection of um, critical Indigenous studies um, through the lens of critical race theory. Mm, yeah, and I mean, that's often we use these kinds of euphemisms. We spoke about euphemisms before in relation to bullying and discrimination. And here we're talking about this euphemism of cultural safety or cultural competence. And there's a whole industry around training and cultural competence oh, in Australia, very often delivered by non-Indigenous people. And so I suppose what you're saying, which is really unique, is that there's a need to focus on how race works, what race does 
in the ongoing colonization of Aboriginal people and in the overall kind of racial landscape of a society like Australia. But, you know, how do we do that? I mean, it's, we, we can see, see clear pathways and we're involved in it in education through the academy, but how do you think we increase racial literacy for people working in an entity like the Australian Public Service? Like, what would that look like? It could look like mandatory training. Yeah, it could be a process of mandatory training. There's all sorts of mandatory training in the Australian public service at the moment. You know, I mean, I, d- I don't see why it can't be done as a yeah. as a mandatory training process. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It makes me think about. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the late Ambalavana Sivanandan from the Institute of Race Relations. Of course, you are. Yeah. And you know, he was really scathing about yeah. racism awareness training. That's right. Rat. Rat, rat training had that unfortunate acronym and he has this brilliant video I'm sure you've seen in which he just talks about you know you know I want my I, I want my self-determination I don't want you yeah. to cry about racism and very mm-hmm. often this is what happens I suppose also in cultural competence training that and and I wonder what you think about this I think about all the white fragility stuff at the moment which mm. is really useful on the one hand but on the other hand again centers white people in mm. the context of attaining this cultural competence, racial literacy, anti-racism training, whatever you mm. want to call it, it becomes about addressing white people's feelings of guilt or inadequacy or frustration or anxiety, as I said before, mm. in the work. And mm. so what, one of the things I think that you and I and other people that we talk to frequently are interested in is how to develop a racial literacy that doesn't do any of that. It's completely yeah, yeah. decenters white feelings. Oh, absolutely. And and the question is how? And 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 that's a really hard question. Yeah, like, it, is. I mean, it is because, yeah, like you say, you know, Seven Endem, you know, criticized um, you know, racism awareness training. And we here are criticizing, you know, cultural awareness training and all of those sorts of trainings as well, because their focus is on, you know, uh, looking at the Aborigine. Well, yeah. I've um, delivered, as you know, um, lots of so-called cultural awareness trainings. Recently, um, well, I had a couple of publications with a colleague, another Aboriginal um, professor, Bronwyn Fredericks, and a couple of our papers, one was called Which Way Talking Culture, Talking Race, um, discusses the the problems that we had when we tried to flip it away from, you know, looking at Indigenous cultures per se and making it look about policies that have impacted on Aboriginal peoples and getting people to have a look at their own privilege and that sort of stuff. And it results in, you know, people crying, people lodging complaints about our training, um, people pushing back to us to say, this is not what we came to hear. We want to learn about the little spirits and the rock art and (laughs) things like that. So it's like really hard to work out where do we go with this? And the only way that I can see it, the way some people are doing it is through opening up um, you know, public education to some point. But what that consists of, I mean, I, I personally think it needs to, you know, be grounded in critical Indigenous studies to mm-hmm. start with and looking through a critical race theoretical lens. Yeah, one of the things that I worry about is that there's the understandable response from, you know, Black people, Indigenous people, people of colour in general, you know, do the work, go and do the reading. Google is your friend. Don't yep. bother us for the 
for educating you were already on the front line of all of this. We're always the people who are turned to first. In fact, you know, Patricia Hill Collins is here mm. in Australia at the moment. And she said last week, it was quite funny. She, she's really funny. She does a lot of like imitations and things. And one of the things she did, you know, you heard her saying as well as I think, you know, I'm from a little university in Texas and we don't have any black families here. Please, mm. Dr. Collins, please come and talk to us about, mm. about, you know, your work and so on. And she's like, I can't educate everybody. And I completely understand that and particularly the load on Aboriginal women in oh, this country absolutely. is immense because not only do you get all of this teach me, teach me, teach me, but you also get you're angry, you're you mm-hmm. know, you're unkind, you're not a gentle person and all those kind of stereotypes about the angry black woman that come out. But at the same time, what I really worry about, frankly speaking, is letting people who have no racial literacy work it out for themselves because nine times out of ten they're getting it wrong. Mm, that's exactly right. The same mistakes are occurring again and again. And one of the things that Patricia Hill Collins said, I think, is she talked about the dialogical relationship that mm. has to happen between Black people, Indigenous people, and, and other people together, including white people. How do we have those conversations which are really grounded in what, what I think is fundamental in Australia, which is ultimately how do we commonly work towards sovereignty? right? Mm. Rather than how do we work towards dismantling racism in the individual, which is the way it's framed at the moment. How can I become less racist is the way that people are framing it, which is kind of the wrong question, maybe. That's right. I mean, and we had a question from the floor the other day that asked, um, you know, where are we sitting with decolonization and, you know, decolonizing the curriculum and indigenizing the curriculum and all of that sort of stuff, which was a dominant focus over the last few years in you know, Australian universities, but very little happens in that space. I mean, we're getting people indigenising the curriculum that have never had a conversation with an Aboriginal person before, yeah. let alone knowing where to go in terms of, you know, um, embedding Indigenous content into curriculum. And indigenising curriculum is more than just adding, you know, a couple of, you know, papers that have been written by Indigenous people and saying, okay, the job's done. So yeah. that become a bit of a tick-the-box um exercise and then you know there was we we quickly bent to a focus around decolonizing the academy Uh, i mean my response to that is that can we ever really you know decolonize a predominantly white colonial institution you know i'm not sure without dismantling it totally and starting again i mean the biggest focus um, do any training and research and that when it comes to bringing in you know, Indigenous peoples is always focusing around our cultural differences and, you know, and, and that doesn't work. And, you know, I um, mentioned the other day that, you know, we, we see the term critical added to courses and added to research and everything, but I don't see any criticality in that. And that's why I say is that, you know, maybe opening up ways for, you know, operationalising critical race theory Mm. as a way to deliver racial literacy or what it is that we're trying to, you know, achieve may be a better way forward for us because, I mean, you know, as Aileen Morton-Robinson has asked before in terms of, you know, criticality and the, you know, focus on cultural differences, uh, she asked, has the intellectual investment in defining our cultural differences resulted in our knowledges being valued and it absolutely hasn't we are still left on the outside and like we said before 
in the academy, in, in the universities, you know, Indigenous people aren't teaching, aren't given the opportunities per se to teach into the disciplinary areas. They're predominantly contained in yeah. Indigenous studies areas. Yeah, which which are very valuable, and but on the other hand, are you know is another mechanism for sidelining Aboriginal people and 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 seeing them as constrained in their expertise and in their knowledge. And one of the things I think that we haven't talked about, and which unfortunately we'll have to have another conversation about for lack of time. But mm -hmm. I think there, um, but which was raised by what you just said to a certain extent, is that there are particular Indigenous knowledges laws. And ways of knowing, which are which have developed over tens of thousands of years, which mm. because of colonization were not only interrupted but also there was an attempt to actively destroy them. So mm -hmm. part of what we're doing, or part of what people like yourself are doing, is to try to actually put those at the center. So the the way into racial literacy is also has to be about decolonizing knowledge as dominant knowledge in our institutions and decentering that and say, well, this is like Eurocentric knowledge is relatively recent, right? So where are indigenous knowledges and what can they actually add to our understanding of why we have something like race? Because it wasn't invented by indigenous people, but indigenous people in this country have suffered the brunt of it. So obviously you can use the knowledge that has been existent in existence for so many years to actually challenge and tackle that rather than again turn to North American theory, Eurocentric theory, etc., to try to tackle something which is a problem uh, that Indigenous people have had to face themselves. Mm, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the biggest things that's come out of this quest for Indigenous knowledge is the recent bushfires in Australia. You know, we've, got, we've had Australia burnt right across the nation. And a lot of that is coming out now is that you know, government haven't been following practices, haven't taken in the knowledges of Indigenous people who lived on these lands for, you know, 60,000s of years. And cultural burning was a, was a practice in a way of maintaining the land. And all of a sudden, you know, your quest for information of how to do cultural burning and, you know, there's this want for that knowledge now. But is that only just because Australia's just burned or will, you know, that be wanted in the future or, you know, will we get over it and then, you know, cultural burning significance will be pushed to the background again? I think that's so interesting because there's this notion uh, among certain sectors of the society that Indigenous people will save us, you know, Indigenous mm. people will save us from the mess that we've got ourselves into mm. rather than actually interrogating, you know, how was the mess created in the first place? That's right. Yeah, it's late. Absolutely. It's late. Like we were talking about this the other day after our workshop and people were saying, well, you know, earth will survive. What we need to do is decide as humanity, how we're going to deal with the fact that we're dying. Right. Mm -mm. Now at the, this late stage of the late capitalist, late colonial game saying, Oh, indigenous people, please save us from our own mistakes or, you know, our own destruction. I, I don't even find the words to express what that what that means and what it what it signifies for, for for us as humanity, but for Aboriginal peoples and this land particularly. Considering there was a per, um, a purposeful process to rid of us as you know, peoples in this country as um, knowers and our knowledges. I mean, there was a for the one of another term we call it here genocide. I know that that word's challenged a lot, but you know, genocide actually happened in Australia. Those of us survive continue to push for sovereignty um, and our enact sovereignty and push for a self determination. People 
tend to think of Aboriginal people as being in the past, but, you know, we're still here. Our ways of knowing, being and doing are still here. And many, you know, have a lot more traditional knowledge than others, but the point is, is that we're still here. This notion of Aboriginal people being still here and through your existence on these lands as being, that's the resistance, that's mm. the struggle. No more really has to be said. You are still here mm. and we attempt to learn from you piecemeal as that is it's all we can try to do with this really this situation of climate disaster that's facing us on this continent and and indeed the world mm. okay so it remains for me to thank you debbie immensely for taking the time to chat to me today thanks to surviving society once again for the invitation thank you very much thank you see you soon thank you for listening to the spotlight series If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.